So this is a question that people have been asking for now more than 2,000 years. Even during Jesus' short time on earth, his identity sparked all kinds of debate. Some said he was a long-awaited Messiah of Israel, which just means the anointed one, while others said he must be demon-possessed. So who really was this Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea? And one thing people do not bring into question, you guys, is his actual existence. Like, people are totally cool with Jesus when you start asking around. Um, They don't really struggle to believe that he was a real person, that he walked the earth. Um, And some of the most famous uh, historians that a lot of us have read through, especially once you get to uh, to university level, um, we've read a lot of these historians who do not have a problem with them. Historians like Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Flavius Josephus, all these people with amazing names that are hard to pronounce do not have a problem with this Jesus, um, who are all non-biblical sources, by the way. Um, all of them agree that Jesus was, in fact, a real individual who walked the earth, who occupied space and time in history at some point. And yet, still so many people are divided on who exactly this man Jesus was while he was on earth. Was he just a man, or was he also the long-awaited Messiah? One of the more popular claims that a lot of us have probably heard was that he was just, you know, a good moral teacher, right? A lot of us have heard that. Or maybe he was like a humanitarian, like Mother Teresa, and he just did amazing things for people. Now, before we answer this question, we have to, I think, go back, back to that moment when Jesus arrived on the scene. And I want us to first get an idea of the the religious climate that Jesus was born into so that we can get a better sense of the claims that Jesus was making about himself, um, his mission, and his followers, and his identity. If we read the Old Testament, you guys will notice a pattern. All of the Hebrew prophets were, which were just the characters used um, to communicate God's message throughout all of the Old Testament, taught that someday God would install his kingdom on earth, and that he would prove in person, which is key, that he had not forsaken his chosen people, the Israelites. He would, as the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapters, chapter 64, 1, he says this, rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you and cause the nations to quake. So this was the hope of the coming Messiah that the Jews of the Old Testament were waiting so desperately for. Now, if you've ever picked up a Bible or you've um, heard the Christmas story, you would know that this was not how Jesus came on the scene. The mountains did not tremble. We're not told that the nations did any sort of quaking. No, Jesus did not come close to satisfying the lavish hopes of the Jews' long-awaited Messiah. He entered the world like the rest of us, as a baby, minus the whole virgin birth thing. And yet the Gospels all claim that this Jesus, this Jewish man born in Bethlehem, who grew up in a rural southern Galilee, was none other than the Son of God, sent down from heaven to lead the fight against evil, 
to defeat it once and for all. Now, if you do have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, which you guys can find in the New Testament. We're going to be looking at chapter 16, verses 13 through 17. And I want us to take a look at the conversation that happens between Jesus himself and Peter, who becomes one of his 12 disciples. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. And so starting in verse 13, we read, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. We'll pause right there. See, to the average person, Jesus was one among many of the prophets sent from God, but he wasn't the prophet. But what we'll notice in this verse is that Jesus doesn't give us that option. As we'll come to see later, Jesus wasn't crucified for just being a good man. He was put to death because he claimed to be God himself in the flesh. He claimed to be equal with God of Abraham. Let's keep reading. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And I'm reading out of the NIV but the ESV might say you are the Christ, which is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Jesus is affirming Peter's response here by agreeing with him that he absolutely is the Messiah. He is who they say he is. See, when people accept Jesus as just another prophet or just another good moral teacher, they don't really know what to do when they come to verses like this, do they? Because Jesus doesn't leave this up for question, for debate. And this was not the first time that Jesus affirms or even declares messiahship. Before Jesus ever called his disciples Uh, which you can read in Matthew 4, we know from the Gospel of Luke um, that Jesus' public ministry had actually already begun. His fame was spreading like wildfire, and he was already ministering throughout the land of Judea, which is the southeastern region of the Mediterranean. And he was teaching throughout all of the Jewish synagogues, which was the practice at the time. And in Luke 4, 16 through 17, we read about a particular visit that Jesus makes to the synagogue in Nazareth, his boyhood town. And I'll read it to you. It says this, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed 
free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was saying in the clearest possible way, I am the one whom the prophets spoke. I am he, I am the Messiah, the anointed one, the Messiah of Israel. And what's so interesting, you guys, is that not only is Jesus saying that this scripture declares who he is and his identity as the Messiah, but he's also telling us what he's actually come to do. He lays it out for us. There's no mystery here. And we would call this the mission as the Messiah. And it's this. He came to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, give sight to the blind, and to set those who are oppressed free. By making these claims, Jesus is essentially saying that the world is not how it should be, right? That the world is broken physically, spiritually, but that he himself is the answer for all of it. It is through him that the world is going to be redeemed. Now, these were revolutionary things that Jesus was saying. He was saying that his mission was to deal with these enormous problems that have been affecting and plaguing mankind throughout history. Now, I think it's important for us to understand that at the time, pseudo-messiahs were popping up all over the place. And they essentially emerged to lead rebellions and only to be crushed in by the ruthless hand of the Roman Empire. Now, for Jesus to even be speaking and teaching in the synagogues like this meant that people were obviously impressed by his words to allow him to keep speaking like he was, especially given his humble background as a carpenter's son. But if we read a little further down in verse 23, we see that the Lord knew that Jesus' popularity was shallow. They did not appreciate Jesus for his true identity, for who he was claiming to be. So if Jesus was the Messiah, and remember, he had already been proving his power at least a year, for at least a year um, throughout the land of Judea. He was healing sick people. He was giving sight to the blind. He was healing people's um, hearing. Then why did the leaders doubt him? For the people in Jesus' day, it was because he did not fulfill their messianic expectations. And this is key. The expectations that were created by the Jewish rabbis at the time was for this thundering, superhuman Messiah that was to come and overthrow the popular strongholds, the political strongholds, excuse me. He would be angelic, right? He'd be prophetic, a political deliverer. The religious leaders at the time, the Jewish people, were staking their entire future on a king who would lead their nation back to glory. The lights are fine, you guys. Don't worry about it. But this was not how Jesus entered the picture. Not only did he not meet the Jewish leaders' expectations, but he actually went as far to remove himself from popular conception completely. So how did he choose to come? 
He came as a suffering Messiah. He came to us displaying perfect humility. Philippians 2, verse 5 through 11 says it this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we read that Jesus was in the form of God, we learn that he existed from all eternity as God. It does not mean that he merely resembled God, right? It doesn't say that. It means that Jesus actually is the son of God. That he really was who he said he was. Now for me, when I read this text, it can be so hard to wrap my head around Jesus's willingness, his willingness to embrace humility, to embrace suffering for me and my own sins. But this right here, you guys, this, this is the good news that we want to speak about every time that we gather. This is the gospel. Jesus was willing to leave the glory of heaven, to empty himself completely, and while still fully God, became fully man by humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Which at the time was the absolute most shameful form of execution in the Roman world. And honestly, for me, it's, it's hard sometimes to even think about um, what it was like for, for just that conversation between God the Father and Jesus when he when he let him know that, hey, I'm going to be sending you, and this is kind of, this is the only way that this is going to be accomplished, and it's through this excruciating, painful, terrible death. But then I met with the reality that my salvation is not something that I can add to. It's not something that I can earn. And it's through the finished work of Jesus on the cross that I am saved. So what happens next? What do we see here in the text? God the Father exalted him. God gave him the name above every other name in heaven and on earth. Verse 10 says, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You guys, God the Father was so satisfied with the redemptive work of Christ that he determined that every knee should bow to him in heaven and on earth. If that doesn't just like blow your mind, I don't know what does. So what does this mean for us in our reality, in our compact, very small individualistic lives that we, we live? What does this mean? What does this mean for the church of Philippi at the time? It means that the kingdom of God, you guys, that Jesus came to establish 
as his messianic mission is upside down. In other words, it is backwards from what we think about when it comes to reaching God, isn't it? It is backwards from how the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders thought that they could climb their way to God. It means that in the same way that God exalted Jesus because of his willingness to serve others, we have to learn to do the same. We have to learn how to sacrifice ourselves, our time, our agendas, our energy for the sake of others, right? Jesus says in John 13, 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. It is our willingness to love others sacrificially that determines our love for God. In Luke 9, 23 through 24, and I'm just like throwing all kinds of scripture at you, but it's just because it's so good. Jesus says this, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their own cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. It is through our willingness to suffer well that we actually discover life. Now how upside down is this way of living, you guys? I can't imagine how upside down it was for the Jewish rabbis at the time, for, for the Jewish leaders at the time who heard this. This was so backwards from everything that they knew about how to get to God. Or just, I want to throw more scripture at you. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. This was Jesus' most famous sermon that he ever gave. And he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they will will be filled, and he goes on. But my point, you guys, is this, sometimes it's, it's so hard. We want to fight so hard for our faith. We wanna fight so hard. We wanna wrestle with God. We're just like, to love me more. You're like, God, if I, if I just do this thing, then you'll love me more. But that is not our reality, you guys. The hard work is finished. The hard work of Jesus dying on the cross for us is finished. There is nothing else that we need to do except just say yes to him, to cry out for mercy. The reason we are so challenged by this way of living, by this way of being, is because it's no longer about us anymore, right? It takes the focus off of me and it puts it back onto Jesus and his mission for my life and what he already accomplished through the work of the cross, it calls me to live in such a sacrificial and seemingly backwards way to where I'm no longer reaching or working my way to God. Jesus was not crucified for just being a good moral teacher. He wasn't crucified for simply challenging the status quo. He was crucified on a cross because he was who he said he was. He was the Messiah. He was the Messiah come down to us and he was crucified because this was the only way in which we, humanity, could be saved. Our sin was so heavy 
that we could never work our way to God on our own. It was too much of a burden to carry. And so Jesus came to us, fully God, fully man, to carry our sin to the cross and to die for you and for me. And guys, that is really good news, if you ask me. In Isaiah 53, we read of this prophecy. And I don't know about you guys, but I love prophecies. Like, it's just such a cool thing. And it's so counterculture. But we read this prophecy in which Jesus is described as our suffering servant. In verse 4, we're told that Jesus took up our pain and bore our suffering. And that's exactly what he did. In other words, Jesus took on the full weight of sin and death so that we wouldn't have to. All that we have to do is put our faith and our trust wholly in him to believe and confess that he alone is Lord and to accept that he is who he says he is, you guys. That he is fully man, but he's fully Messiah. And if we do this, if we make this simple request or this prayer, you guys, we're told that we'll be saved. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we're told that we will be saved. I've said this before, but the only difference between a sinner and a saint is a sinner, or excuse me, a saint is someone who just cried out for mercy, right? So my challenge for you today, you guys, is that are you willing to set aside whatever pride that you have, whatever it is that you feel like you're doing, you feel like you're trying to reach your way to God, God is with you. He sees you. Just like the Pharisees and these Jewish leaders, we have all these expectations that we put on God, don't we? We say things like, God, if you just fix this one thing in my life, or if you just show up, God, in this one way, then I can trust you. Then I'll follow you. But Jesus makes it really easy. He just says, come to him. Come to me. Bring your brokenness to me. Guys, let Jesus work out the details of your life and you will find so much freedom. All we have to do is say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that you came on this earth fully man, fully Messiah, and that you died for me and that you rose so that I could have a relationship with you.